In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So imagine you're at home watching a movie. And it's the kind of movie where the odds are always stacked against the hero, and evil always seems to have the upper hand. But no matter how dreary things look, no matter how incompetent the hero's sidekicks may be, the hero always seems to come out on top. And he prevails in the purest, most humble, most beautiful way imaginable. And as the movie continues, you can sense the tension is building. You can tell that something big is about to happen. And then it does. Great multitudes of people begin to recognize this hero as the blameless, wise, and upright person he truly is. And then they usher him into the highest office in the land. They see his arrival as the coming of their long-awaited, long-sought-after righteous leader. And then as the movie seems to reach its apex, there's a commercial break. So you run into the kitchen, you grab your drink, your chips, and you hurry back to your seat. But as soon as you re-enter the room, you notice your movie's already back from commercial. And even though you were only gone for a few seconds, you can sense that the whole story feels different. And not just a little different, the story is practically unrecognizable. The hero of the story, the one who was just celebrated and honored as the people's ideal leader, is now being viciously attacked and rejected. You watch in disbelief as the hero is spat upon and beaten, and then to your shock and horror before your very eyes, the hero is brutally murdered. Now, if something like that happened to you, what are some questions you might ask? I think I would say something like, who changed the channel? Or is this the same movie I was just watching? What in the world happened? All I did was get some chips, and now it's like a whole different movie. Well, as it turns out, we don't need to imagine watching a story turn on a dime. We don't need to imagine a story being radically different in a short period of time because we're living in one right now. Not five days ago, we stood in this very room with palm branches in our hand and shouted Hosanna to the son of David. And yet, here we are in the blink of an eye, mourning his brutal murder and death. So how does it come to this? How did we get here? A silent procession with a cross draped in black. There's no songs, no shouts of victory. The sense of hope that is a cornerstone of the gospel story is replaced with solemn hearts, silent lips, and a barren altar. How could the gospel story so rapidly devolve from the triumphal entry of Jesus to his crucifixion? Why does the story change from the elation of Palm Sunday to the lament of Good Friday? And what on earth is there good about this Friday anyway? My hope this afternoon is that we answer those questions, and by doing so, we can see Good Friday for what it truly is. Because, guys, Good Friday really is the beginning of something truly good. So if you have your Bibles, look with me in your Gospel text, John chapter 19, and let's see the hope that God brings us on this Good Friday. Now, We could approach the question of how the story shifts from the triumph of Palm Sunday to the catastrophe of Good Friday in a a million ways. But I think we have a clue at the very center of our gospel text, a clue that gives us an insight into how things unwound so quickly. Look in John chapter 19, verse 15. It reads, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, 
The statement, we have no king but Caesar, is a radical thing for a Pharisee to say. The Pharisees did believe that one day the Messiah would come to Israel as their king. So what could make a Pharisee utter the radical statement, we have no king but Caesar? Well, imagine it like this. You're you're just an ordinary Joe on the streets of Jerusalem that Palm Sunday. You're waving your palm branches, branches, you're proclaiming Jesus as Israel's promised Messiah, as her true king. And you can hardly believe it. God's Messiah, the deliverer of all Israel, has finally come. His rule will be just, his ways will be straight, and his hand will be against all of those who oppose his reign. And the cruel tyranny of Rome would be squarely in his sights. But over the next few days, Jesus proceeds to do the exact opposite of everything you thought he would do. He doesn't kick Rome out of the land at all. As a matter of fact, the only people he kicked out of anything were all of the hardworking merchants in the temple. He doesn't confront the Roman, the very first Roman with the charge of injustice. No, he saves those charges and accusations for the Pharisees and Sadducees, just good old Jewish boys. And that doesn't sound right to you. When the Messiah came, he would be opposed to the Romans. How could he not be? And surely the Messiah and the religious leaders would be on the same page when it came to, I don't know, religion, instead of always debating with each other. And now that you think about it, Jesus doesn't really look like a king at all. I mean, a king's supposed to have pomp. A king is supposed to be regal. A king is supposed to be powerful and respected. A king should look like, you know, Caesar or Herod. After Palm Sunday, many in Jerusalem rejected Jesus because he failed to look and act like the Messiah they expected. And to their credit, the disciples didn't fall into that trap. No, they believed that Jesus really was Israel's Messiah. The only real issue the disciples had with Jesus being the Messiah was that he kept talking about his coming death. And every time Jesus would say something about his death, the disciples would roughly reply something like, yeah, well, whatever, Jesus. I don't know what you mean, but you don't actually mean that because everybody knows messiahs don't die. Seemingly everyone had some issue with Jesus being king, whether because of his appearance or what he said. But one thing was sure. Jesus did not look or act like the kings of this world. He looked nothing like a Caesar or a Herod. And just before our gospel text begins, Jesus explains why he and the kings of this world look so different. In John chapter 18, Pilate is investigating the charges brought against Jesus. And Pilate asked Jesus a question, a question about whether or not Jesus is a king. And Jesus responds to Pilate in John 18, verse 36, and says this, "'My kingdom is not of this world.'" If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from this world. Did you catch that? Jesus tells Pilate that neither he nor his kingdom are from this world. Neither he nor his kingdom draw their quality, their legitimacy, their appearance from this world. And so the image of Jesus as king will always be an image in conflict with the kings of this earth because Jesus and the kings of this earth aren't from the same world. 
And so it seems to me that one reason our story so quickly devolves from Palm Sunday to Good Friday is this. Jesus, a king from another world, another realm, the true king of Israel herself, fails to meet many people's illegitimate expectations. Jesus fails to look like a king from this world. He fails to act like a king from this world. And as soon as Jesus fails to meet the people's expectations of what kingship should look like, everyone from distant onlooker to his closest disciples abandon him. They run from him. Even those closest to him deny him and say they've never seen the guy. They have no idea who he is. The rapid change we see from Palm Sunday to Good Friday is because blind, arrogant, self-centered men indict Jesus for the crime of failing to meet their expectations. The divine king is found guilty of not looking like an earthly one. This is creation turned on its head. This is creation upside down and backwards. But here's what no one expected and what actually makes this Good Friday good. Jesus the Messiah came to this distorted world and subjected himself to its cruelty because a backwards and cruel world was the exact thing he came to fix. A backwards and upside down world was the exact thing he came to turn the right way up again. And the illegitimate kingdoms of this world knew that. The kingdoms of this world fought against Jesus from his birth always seeking a way to undermine his kingdom, always seeking a way to kill the king himself. Evil was absolutely determined to win the war it waged against Jesus and would battle against Jesus with its full strength and power at every turn. But Jesus had a battle plan as well. Jesus' plan was this. He would walk across the field of battle he would surrender himself to his chief enemies and allow himself to be beaten, humiliated, and killed. And guys, this is where we need to give the disciples just a little bit of slack. If we were in the disciples' shoes and Jesus told us his plan was to be utterly shamed and murdered, not one of us say, hey, Jesus, great plan. Not one. Imagine it like this. You're one of FDR's closest advisors in World War II. And he tells you that his master plan to defeat the Nazis was to fly to Berlin and to surrender to Hitler and be publicly executed. Who was going to look at him and say, wow, heck of a plan, man. This is one of the reasons that the disciples could not wrap their mind around Jesus dying. They did truly believe he was the king. They truly believed he was Israel's Messiah, but the Messiah was expected to fight evil the Messiah wouldn't surrender himself to the evil ones. The Messiah wins the fight, right? And it makes sense to assume that dying a brutally shameful death does not constitute winning. So when the guards come to arrest Jesus, as the forces of evil led by Judas march up to the king, some of the disciples resist. They fight. And in the midst of that fight, the servant of the high priest, a soldier whose mission was to arrest Jesus, has his ear cut off by Peter. And what does Jesus do? He bends down, picks up the severed ear of Malchus, his enemy, and retaches it to his head. Then Jesus commands Peter to put his sword away, because unlike the kings of this earth, the sword is not an instrument this conquering king would use. 
The sword is not how this righteous king will fight the forces of evil. This king will fight and conquer evil by submitting himself to his accusers' insults and beatings, even though he possesses all power. He will endure their betrayal and lies, even though he is the living embodiment of faithfulness and truth. This king, God himself in the flesh, will even endure the demonic irony of having the charge of blasphemy brought against him. And as Jesus surrendered himself to the evil kingdoms of this world, the forces of darkness were convinced of their victory, and every agent of evil in the entire universe was drawn out for battle. And as God himself surrendered to darkness, the full weight of evil concentrated all of its combined strength upon the very body of Jesus. And as the forces of darkness poured out their combined power and cruelty upon the broken and mangled body of Jesus, disaster seemed to have occurred. Jesus drew his final breath on the cross, humiliated and ravaged. The forces of evil and darkness seemed to have taken the day. Jesus, the light of the world, had been snuffed out. The war for the redemption of mankind was over, And God was dead. But what no one, not even the devil himself, could have seen coming was that this was the exact way Jesus, a king not from this world, would totally defeat evil. The good news we have today, what makes this Good Friday truly good, is that some 2,000 years ago on a Friday evening, Christ took into himself the full weight of a broken and upside-down world. Christ took into himself death itself and bore in his very body everything corrupted in the whole ruined creation. Christ consumed everything in need of redemption, and by doing so, he left nothing outside of his authority to forgive and redeem. Jesus Christ took everything a broken and evil world could throw at him. Every sin, every blasphemy, everything that was ruined in the fall was taken into Jesus on this Friday. Everything broken and marred and heinous, every single bit of pain and evil were swallowed up and consumed by Jesus this day. And what the full might of darkness found as it was confronting Jesus on the cross was that the full might of evil was no match for the goodness of this king. Evil could not out-evil God's goodness. Good Friday shows us that under the providential hand of God, evil undoes itself. The cross is the quintessential picture of this, the quintessential example. It's the most savage and appalling way of dying the kingdoms of this world could dream up. And Jesus responds to the evil rulers of this world by using the world's most shameful way of dying as the very instrument by which he redeems the fallen creation. The goodness of this Friday is verified in the resurrection. That's true. And very soon we will celebrate Easter together. But we aren't to that part of the story yet. Today we mourn. But our mourning isn't because we think all is lost or that Jesus is dead. Our mourning this afternoon isn't because we're pretending to forget about Easter. No, that's not it. 
We mourn this afternoon because what it took to make things right in this rebellious world was the one who never knew sin to come and take it on for us. To enter our sinful world and then to bear the sinful world in himself. The name above all names lowered himself into humanity, into a fallen creation, and then lowered himself further still into death. And he did that so that nothing, not even your death, should keep you from him. This is the hope that Good Friday brings us. This is what makes Good Friday truly good. If you are in Christ, if he makes his dwelling in you, then nothing can separate you from him. Nothing can keep you from him. Not an evil world, not powerful people, not even your death will have the final say over you. And death is something we all face sooner or later. Even, even Jesus found this to be true. But can I tell you, when your time comes, you will not face death alone because Christ has gone before you into death and by his resurrection has made a way for you out of death. And for those who are in Christ, death has no power. Death has no claim over you. Death cannot hold on to those who belong to Jesus because death has no hold over Jesus himself. And this is the beautiful paradox of Good Friday. The cross, which was a symbol of scornful shame and cruelty, was transformed by Christ into a symbol of love and forgiveness. Death Humanity's most ancient and hated enemy has been transformed by Christ's death into the way through which you receive eternal life. Death is now no longer to be feared by the Christian because death is the channel through which we commune with God himself. No one thought it possible that out of a Friday afternoon so bleak and dark, all of this beauty and victory would emerge. How could they? The cross seems like foolishness to the world. But to those who were being saved, it is the power of God. Amen.